0: You know, I believe the best way to interpret the Bible is by using the Bible and then by putting it into context. And those are pretty traditional, you know, sort of evangelical modes of understanding the Bible, Um, which is why it's so ironic to me, because if we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, complementarianism falls apart.
1: Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel with a changing culture. And I am so pleased to bring to you today an interview with Beth Allison Barr, the author of *The Making of Biblical Womanhood*. Um, Beth Allison Barr is a uh, medieval historian and graduate uh, dean of the graduate school at Baylor University, and she has made a huge impact over the last year or two um, with her book *The Making of Biblical Womanhood*. Um, and as we get into in our conversation, this book. Um, addresses the cultural construction and the historical construction of this idea of men and women having these God-ordained roles um, and this complementarian philosophy or theology. And so this is a a really great conversation. She is so smart, so well-spoken. She really knows this stuff inside and out. Um, and she, as she shares, she is also very uh, passionate and fervent in her belief and her faith, um, very grounded in uh, Nicene, Orthodox Christianity, and a strong high view of the Bible. So let's get to this great conversation. Beth, how would you describe your faith background?
0: Oh, gosh, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about Jesus or uh, the Christian faith. Um, I grew up my parents were very strong believers. Um, some of my earliest memories are my mom uh, doing Bible study early in the morning. She's been a Bible study teacher all of my life. In fact she still teaches Bible study. she teaches um, she separately with her in her home that she's been teaching you know for for over a decade. Um, Just, you know, an individual. And so there's not a time in her life where she's ever not taught Bible study. Um, So I grew up with, with models of very strong faith. And I became I professed, um, you know, my own belief at a relatively young age, you know, I was uh, junior high ish, and I was baptized. Um, let me see, how old was I? I think I was uh, 12 when I was baptized, 11 or 12. Um, so anyway, so this, is, I, I don't ever really remember a time not hearing the gospel and not believing the gospel. Um, so, and, and most of that time has been spent in the world of conservative evangelicalism. So, you know, I grew up Baptist, I grew up SBC Baptist, um, and even there's been times in our life where we haven't been at a Baptist church, but it was at a Bible church, so which functioned in many ways, like a, uh, a cross between an SBC church and a PCA church. So anyway, so if, that, if that's a little bit helpful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, what is your overall argument in the making of biblical womanhood?
0: Yeah, it's a pretty easy argument. I tell Mm -hmm. people it's uh, the easiest thesis um, that I've ever written. And it's simply that this understanding of biblical womanhood, that women are ordained by God to be under male leadership, um, that this is not a biblical concept, that this is actually something that we have carried to the Bible and we have carried it to the Bible throughout the history of Christianity, but in different ways. Um, And so that's one of the main arguments, too, is that the arguments that we make for women's subordination change based upon our culture. And this is one of the ways that we know that biblical womanhood is more influenced by culture than it actually is by the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, is that biblical womanhood isn't biblical. And that biblical womanhood changes uh, according to uh, different cultural standards, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where it comes from.
1: Yeah. And that's a really, a really good point and argument. You know, this, if this were biblical, it wouldn't change so much over time in the way it's presented.
0: You know, I mean, you can even think about the gospel. This is something that there are obvious different understandings of the gospel like how does salvation work christians have been trying to figure that one out you know um um, what does why does salvation work um you know we we come up with different ideas and understandings about that but basically the idea of salvation itself that it comes through um through a belief in the sacrifice of jesus and the birth death and resurrection of jesus um, that this is where saving grace comes from, that's pretty much consistent. I mean, that is consistent throughout Christian history. Uh, and so it's there are these theological truths that have remained consistent despite all of the variations in Christian culture um, and Christian history. Uh, it's, it's the things that we add to that gospel that change. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to ask also, why did you want to write this book?
0: <laughs> I didn't want to write this book. Um, <laughs> I did not want to write this book. Never even occurred to me to write a book, really until 2018, when I was asked if I had thought about writing a book. And um, so this is not a book I ever set out to write. It is not, I never really wanted to be in the spotlight the way that I, that I have been. I'm very much a behind the scenes person. Uh, so this has all been a really strange, bizarre experience for me. Um, But it was a book that I felt compelled to write. When the question was put to me, have you considered this? My thought, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, I could do this. Because I realized that I had the academic expertise to see this from a different perspective than it has mostly been argued from. Um, I realized that I had the experience, um, that I had lived through, um, really the church too, um, in, in more than one way, the impact this teaching had on women. And then I also had the evangelical credentials because I, I am one. And despite the fact that people keep trying to push me out, um, and argue that I, you know, belong somewhere else. Uh, you know, they, they really can't, because because I I firmly still believe in scriptural authority. I still believe in the gospel. I'm a gospel centered scriptural authority, and those are two of the defining characteristics of what um, evangelicals claim. Or at least the theological evangelical, not the cultural mm-hmm. practice of evangelicalism, but those are two of the major tenets. Um, and so I, so I am part of this world, mm. and so I realized that I could speak in a way that other people couldn't speak. Mm. So that's really ultimately why I wrote the book. I, I you know, I've said before, it was kind of an act of desperation because it was like I know things that other people in my world don't know and if they knew them they might think differently about this
1: yeah that's that is so true um you know i love the book and uh, in large part because of how you frame it in that way that you know i've lived my whole life in this world this is what i was taught this is what i heard it being taught except when i became a medieval historian i knew <laughs> that this wasn't always the way it is now right and I, and I wanted to speak into that and, and let other people know that too. Um, you also write in the book and say that Christian patriarchy is still patriarchy.
0: Um, yeah.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of people have gotten upset about this um, and want me to soften it or, you know, want, want me to go back on that, that there's some that, you know, it's, it's, it's such a no brainer to me. You know, all patriarchy is, is this systemic, you know, structure that places women underneath men. And in a way that women cannot, that women don't have the same opportunities as men, that women economically are always paid less than men. Um, that, you know, legally women are often under, considered to be under the authority of men. They don't have the same type of legal freedoms that men do. Um, You know, and people in the U.S. may be like, oh, but women today are legally the same. Go back and look at your history. It wasn't until the 1970s that women, single women, were able to purchase cars without having a male cosigner. I mean, just think about some of it. This is a very late development for women in the US to have virtually the same legal freedoms as men. Mm. Um, so you know, very, very recent history. Uh, so patriarchy is simply this, this system that it manifests in different cultures in different ways. But at the end of the day, um, women are under the authority of men. And one of my favorite historians, you know, she explains it this way. She says, you know, patriarchy is like a dance. Um, the music changes and the food changes and the decorations change and the clothing changes. But at the end of the day, it's always the men who are leading and that's patriarchy Mm -hmm. and Christian patriarchy is exactly that. It is exactly that the men are always leading and women are And the argument in Christian patriarchy is not simply that women are not as smart as men or that women biologically are predetermined not to lead because, you know, we have babies. Um, But the argument is that God has ordained women to be under male authority. And that's why men are always leading. So if you look at it from that perspective of what patriarchy is, Mm -hmm. Christianity is no different Mm -hmm. um, than it. And in fact, you know, a lot of people have come along and been like, you know, those the Christian arguments for female subordination sound a whole lot like other arguments in other religions that, um, are not Christian. <laughs> and it's, it's like, yes, because it's patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I would, I would even, I believe you argue this toward the end of the book, or, or maybe I heard this on a different podcast interview you did, but, um, I would argue and agree that, um, Christian patriarchy is even worse in a way because you, you know, if it's based on this false idea that men are smarter than women, well, I mean, you can disprove that. Um, if right. it's based on this biolog- biological argument, you can disprove that. But, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with people who say, well, God made it this way. Um, yes. Yeah. And so that's a good segue into my next question. Um, how would you describe complementarianism? and its relationship mm-hmm. to patriarchy.
0: Yeah, so this is I made um, I made Kevin DeYoung unhappy when he wrote his his review on the Gospel Coalition of the of my book where he didn't like the way that I define complementarianism which I thought was really kind of funny um, because I didn't use his language and so you know on the one hand Uh, So, I mean, the way I defined complementarianism is really just another variation of of patriarchy um, in which complementarianism argues that women are divinely called to be under the authority of men. And in the house, uh, there are male headship in the home and male headship in the church. Um, And while there's different variations of this, you know, there's some that call themselves soft complementarians, that they believe in male headship but, and they still believe in male authority in the church, but women can do a whole lot of things, like even preach maybe, as long as they're under male leadership. And then what they call hard complementarianism, which are where women um, are have almost no voice in the church whatsoever, at least in leadership positions. And women also have, you know, the way male headship is interpreted in the home may even go as far as saying women can't work outside the home. Um, That women have to, you know, even sort of enforcing even things like homeschooling in the home, even conversations among hard complementarians, like, can women go to college? These are seriously conversations that people are still having. Can women go to college if all they are supposed to do is get married and be under male leadership? So is it right to let a woman go out of, her, out of her father's house and go to college before she goes into her husband's house? Mm-hmm. So that's like sort of the more extreme version of hard complementarianism. Um, the problem though is that it all, hard complementarianism is the logical outcome of arguing that women's primary role, godly role is to be a wife and a mother and that that should always be first in a woman's life. I mean, that's really what complementarianism argues—that women are under male leadership, and that women's primary godly calling is as a wife and a mother, and everything else has to take second place to that. Um, so, you know, so it's sort of the logical outcome of that. You can see where you get to arguments. I mean, should the women go to college if their primary calling is is not to work outside the home? Mm-hmm. Um, So it's, you know, it makes sense, even though most people would not carry it to that extreme. Um, So that's what, you know, complementarianism, the Danvers statement, um, you know, talks about it in a way that's, I guess that's what Kevin DeYoung wanted me to quote, or the SBC 2000, you know, the Baptist faith, and message. Um, And what that, that both it and the Danvers statement say that women are equal to men But they are called to submit graciously. So it's actually a choice on the woman's part to submit, to submit graciously to the leadership of her husband and to put her household first. Um, so I guess complementarianism in that sense, it puts the onus on the woman Hmm. to accept her role, which is why women who um, don't accept complementarianism are pushed out and, you know, labeled as being feminist, which is seen as a bad word among complementarians, um, and because they are not putting, they are they are not choosing to submit. Mm -hmm. And so that's also why it becomes a sin of pride for women, because they are not doing they are sinning because they are not doing what God has called them to do. Um, So on the one hand, there are those distinctives, I guess, within complementarianism that puts the you know, the Christian, that puts it in Christian terms about why a woman should be at home and why a woman should be under the leadership of her husband and even interpreting a woman doing other things as being sinful behavior. I mean, that puts it in, makes it a little bit different. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still this patriarchal structure. Mm-hmm. Um, also, complementarianism is a really new word, uh, 1986, 87 is when they coined the phrase complementarian, and they coined it because um, they thought patriarchy was too hard of a word, even though they used patriarchy. I mean, that's what's so funny, too, is people are like, it's not patriarchy. And I'm like, well, until 1987, it was. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, um, historically speaking. Um, And so they they called it patriarchy themselves Mm. until then, when they decided that a nicer word was complementarianism. So I forgot
1: the second part of your question. Oh, uh, you answered it, actually. Um, <laughs> Did I? Oh, yeah. yeah, I, I asked his about its relationship to patriarchy. And in your description, I mean, you present it perfectly. Um, yeah, I mean, I know, I, I think most complementarians, you know, say something like, well, we believe men and women are equal, but yes. called to these different distinctive complementary roles. But then, you know, when you look at it or dig into the details it's exactly what you describe. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it just so happens that men's God-ordained roles are the leadership roles and working outside the home. And women, uh, their God-ordained roles just happen to be being a wife and a mother and staying at home. And and like you said, the natural conclusions from that is, well, should women even go to college? Um, right. You know, and then another thing uh, that really struck me as you were talking, mm-hmm. you said, you were describing how in soft complementarianism you know they say that women should graciously submit and it should be a woman's Mm -hmm. choice to do that and i could see that i could see that logic theologically except of course they don't accept that choice if it's not the choice they want right then they start pressuring women you know you're sinning you're prideful um and so your your answer just Definitely nailed that relationship to patriarchy. Um, So, I want to get into the Bible a little bit. Um, If you read certain passages, it's pretty clear that Paul is responding to concerns and ideas that were brought up in the letters he received. But Paul doesn't use quotation marks and signal phrases to let us know when he's quoting someone versus when he's writing his own thoughts. Um, and so in your book, the, the Making of Biblical Womanhood, you argue that we may have confused Paul's counter right. against pagan culture with Paul's own thoughts. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how Paul may be quoting someone else in 1 Corinthians specifically yeah. uh, when he appears to say that women should be silent and learn from their husbands?
0: So, you know, I think that when we think about Paul, I think what we need to do is we need to flip where we start with Paul. And often as conservative evangelicals, we start with these very specific verses that seem to be saying women be silent, you know, that, or that do say women be silent, women submit to the authority of their husbands, et cetera. We start with those. And my question is why? Why do we start with those? Um, we start with those because we wanna enforce female subordination. The problem is, is that if we start with the rest of Paul, if we start with Romans 16, if we start with the fact that Romans was delivered by a woman and read by a woman, um, if we start with all of the women running throughout the Pauline letters who Paul recognizes as co-workers alongside him and calls as deacons um, and calls one an apostle, um, if we start with those women who are the majority, you know, there's many more references to these women than there are verses that say women be silent and women submit to the authority of your husbands. Um, then we've we've got to look at those verses differently because Paul cannot be telling women to be silent because he's gives women permission to speak throughout the rest. I mean, he you know he regards them as his co-workers doing the same type of work as men. Um, If we look at Paul and compare it to the Gospels, see the same thing. Um, We see not only, you know, we see like people like Martha, who is the only other person in the New Testament in the Gospels who recognizes Jesus for who Jesus is. It's Peter and Martha who are the only ones. I mean, I don't think this is accidental that we have you know, God made sure that we knew that not only a man recognized Jesus for who he was, but a woman did too. Um, The same sort of thing. Um, We have Mary and Martha who are put up as the model, um, really deacons, um, when, you know, talking about the service of the 70 going out and what to look for and what not to look for. And Mary and Martha are the models for a good, um, you know, for what you are to, to look for. These people who are serving God. And welcoming these deacons into their home, and also themselves doing the work of deacons, the same work, the same word for deacon, for the service of a deacon, is what is used to describe what Martha is doing. Um, you know, we've we've made her into a household servant when that's not really what she was doing. She was doing the same work as the as the disciples and the rest of the you know um, deacons. So we've got a you know. My question is, let's when we start from those places, then there's a problem with what Paul is saying. Either there's a problem with what Paul is saying, or we have read Paul wrongly. And while, yes, Paul was human, he could certainly contradict himself. Um, I don't think he is contradicting himself. Um, you know, if we put those verses within context, what we find is that Paul is doing with those verses exactly what he does throughout the rest of his letters. He's correcting problems within specific churches. And, and what that does is it it lessens the significance of those verses. Because while there are broad, um, you know, there are broad principles that we can learn from them, the broad principle to learn from Paul is that we are called to unity in Christ and we are called to not think ourselves as better than anyone else you know he uses this body imagery over and over we are not to think ourselves as better than others we all have different gifts we all have one purpose um which is to further the gospel of christ and so those are the big overarching principles and then what paul does is he goes through and he deals with these individual problems that are causing disunity that are you know hurting the gospel um, and that are causing some people to think they're better than other people. And that's, he goes through and he deals with those, all of those problems. And that's, you know, if you want to summarize what Paul's doing, that's what Paul's doing. So then if we take these verses about women and put them in that context, then we're like, okay, so we have a couple of choices here. One, Paul is speaking to very specific circumstances with these, with what's going on with these women, which, you know, we I know is the case. Um, Two, how is Paul using these verses? And one of the ones, you know, that we know for sure, we know that one of the ways Paul teaches, he's a trained Roman orator. um, And he uses a strategy that Roman um, rhetoricians used. And he uses several strategies that they used, actually. And one of them is, you know, is this quotation method where in, in order to refute an argument, they quote that argument first. They say this, and Jesus does this, you have heard this, mm-hmm. now I'm going to tell you this. This is what Paul does. I mean, and there's several places, especially mm-hmm. in Corinthians, where um, scholars do not dispute that Paul is doing this. Like when he's talking about, you know, food is good for the body and the body for food. That's a Roman quote. That's a Corinthian quotation. Mm-hmm. Nobody really disputes that. Um And so we know Paul does this in other places. And so it seems to me that where Paul tells women, you know, women be silent and women ask your husbands at home, it's that's a very jarring break in what he is doing in this passage that's talking about, you know, that really is talking about order in the service. And then all of a sudden he stops and does this. Um, It makes a lot more sense. So if you think about that, he's actually quoting, what the corinthian world is doing especially when we find out that um the comments that he makes are almost word for word what we find in roman law Mm -hmm. and what we find in other roman literary sources which is you know um maybe a little telling that these aren't paul's words and so it makes sense you know where paul's going through and talking about order and worship and then he stops and he says y'all are telling women to be silent and not to talk in church, but to ask their husbands at home. And then he follows it. He says, what? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it has reached? You know, he he clearly, he's saying, who are you in this very particular place to be trying to pull one of your practices and say, this is what women are supposed to do. And he says, no, all things are to be done in unity and with order. Um, and so what, you know, if we read it that way, what Paul is doing is enforcing what he allows women to do throughout his letters, which is speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it just makes a lot of historical sense. Now, you know, I did have one sort of smart aleck, um, uh, graduate student. I work a lot with graduate students. And so I was giving a talk and I had one of them and he said, well, you know, it's really hard to know quotations in Paul, and I don't know how you could say definitively that's what Paul's doing. And I said, well, I didn't say definitively that's what Paul's doing. I asked a question. I said, is it possible for us to read Paul this way? Because this is not the only possibility. Um, But all of the reputable possibilities do agree that these are not Paul's words, Mm -hmm. that either somebody, you know, this is one that often Christians don't like, you know, did somebody insert those words in? That is a scholarly possibility, because we know these aren't Paul's words. Um, the other, which I think is the more likely one, because Paul does it throughout, you know, Corinthians, is Paul is quoting. That's why they're Roman words, because Paul's quoting them, and then he's refuting them. Um, but what when we look at the scholarly, you know, we, when we look at what Paul's doing, it is not a responsible conclusion to say that Paul is telling women for all time that they cannot speak and that they have to ask their husbands at home because that is not consistent with what Paul does throughout the rest of the letters. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has to be doing something else here. And it makes sense that he is doing what he's done in other places, which is quoting a bad practice and then refuting it. Um, Lucy Peppiet does a beautiful job with this with, in her *Women in Corinth*. Scott McKnight also has written quite a bit about this, so there's a lot of good, solid Christian scholars um, who have done a wonderful, wonderful job talking about what Paul was really doing here.
1: Yeah, that's a an excellent, very thorough explanation, and and I love that how much of that explanation is grounded in the Bible. You know, look look yeah. at what Paul himself says in the totality of his letters and ministry and these couple verses really stick out as being inconsistent with Paul himself um and then from that what are the implications what are the possibilities um right yeah and so I also want to um ask about Bible translations um because this is something else you talk about (laughs) Um, so you explain in your book that certain Bible translations deliberately mistranslate key passages, um, to minimize the importance of women like Junia, the apostle and other translations, maybe insert a lot of male pronouns that don't exist in the original Greek manuscripts. Um, so they're making Paul seem like he's really focused on men preaching only, uh, because they added like eight pronoun male pronouns. Um, so I, I kind of, Wanted to take a broader focus, um, how are Bible translations created? Um, and how can yeah. that process result in mistranslations?
0: So, um, you know, this is this has actually been one of the most surprising um, responses that I've gotten from people is about this chapter, chapter five and the making of biblical womanhood. Um, and that's simply because I, I did not realize how much of this is new information to people. And that's, you know, and I don't, I just sometimes when in the scholarly world, um, we sometimes forget how much is not disseminated to the church in a usable way. And actually, this is one of my biggest beefs. I mean, one of my biggest problems with um, the evangelical world is that we, is that reputable information about what's going on with the bible scholarly information is not being disseminated through to teach to people in the church i mean they're just simply not getting these things a lot of it is academics fault because we write horribly and we write only for each other in an exclusive way that excludes people and i mean that's our fault um for doing that um but it's also the fault of the church and the christian um uh publishing industry that only, that does not publish scholars um, in a way that gets into Sunday school material. You know, for, I mean, if you go through, I I do this all the time, I'm horrible. Um, You know, I'm in a Sunday school class, they're using a Sunday school literature and I immediately flip to try to see what the bibliography is. And I go through and I look and I see who they're quoting. And what I usually find is that they are only quoting other people like them. And so, you know, if it's Lifeway, they only quote things published by Lifeway. Mm -hmm. They only quote, you know, they have a very small group of authors that they quote from in there um, who are all quoting each other. And so what you end up with is this sort of self-fulfilling circle um, where they're only telling each, they're only saying the same things that they've always said that they then quote each other as proof of saying these things. <laughs> so it just gets in this little circle here um, so there's all sorts of problems with this um, and, and it really comes out in Bible translations I think now I will put out here I, I don't want to scare people um, 90 to 95% of all modern English Bible translations are the same pretty much the same You know, um, none of the variations in modern Bible translations mess with the gospel of Jesus Now, there are some that are outside of Orthodox Christianity um, that, you know, where people have done that. You can think about like the Jehovah's Witness um, and things like that, you know, and they are outside of the bounds of Orthodox Christianity because they believe Jesus is a created being, which goes back to Arianism. Um, And so nonetheless, but they have, you know, they've done different things to the Bible. So I'm not talking about like that. I'm talking about within the bounds of Christian Orthodoxy. Um, and you know, Nicene Christians. And what they have done, is, and so 90 to 95% of those English Bible translations, you know, they're virtually the same. So take the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, um, which was the translation in the mid-20th century. It was done by a lot of academics. Um, it got a lot of pushback by ordinary evangelicals because they made the word about mary the mother of god um they changed it from virgin to maiden essentially is what they did and everyone went out through the roof that they were trying to diminish the virginity of mary which means diminishing the the god nature of jesus um that's not at all the word maiden is actually interchangeable with virgin i mean virgin was our word that we put in there. And so it's all this, but everybody decided that the RSV was really liberal um, because of that one change. And so it's actually, it's a kind of funny. The RSV is actually not really all that liberal. It has, it, anyway. Um, but <laughs> I, the I've, ESV. Sorry, I wanted English to interject sharing.
1: real quick. Um, oh,
0: yeah. Please the, do whatever.
1: No, no, I just, since you mentioned the RSV specifically, I've heard the RSV is actually more faithful to the original trans, uh, text, um, and what you were describing there with the word "virgin" versus "maiden" seems to support that. So I just I just wanted to interject real quick and throw out there that that irony that you know this text is trying to be more faithful to the originals, but then gets labeled as "quote unquote" liberal um,
0: <laughs> um. because it contradicts not the biblical text but what we have been taught to believe about the biblical text Yes. you know we loaded this word virgin in a way that it wasn't loaded in um, in you know in the time of Mary I mean mm-hmm. saying that a woman was a, a maiden and unmarried still in the household of her father means exactly the same thing yeah. um, And so anyway but we we make distinctions that people in the biblical world would not have made. Mm. Um, so that's anyway, interesting. It's yeah. Thinking about culture, culture influences the way that we read the Bible and the way that we translate the Bible. And that's pretty much my argument. Mm-hmm. Because as I said, every translation, if you want to use the word in some ways is a mistranslation. Um, every translation doesn't get, is not, is not creating a text that is exactly the way that it appeared to its original audience. Mm. Um, you know, people talk about original manuscripts. I'm not so certain. You know, that's a that's a loaded phrase. But what we can definitely talk about is an original audience, mm. and it is really hard to get biblical text faithful to the way that original audience would have heard because we are not in their culture and we are not you. We are translating it in a language, you know, to English, which is very foreign from the biblical world.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so every translator makes choices and those choices do not influence the narrative of the gospel. What those choices influence are what I call the little stories of the Bible, things like the role of women mm-hmm. in the church. Um, so the English standard version made a conscious choice. And, and in fact, you know, some some have said, well, how do you know they made a conscious choice? And I said, well, because they said they did. <laughs> and so I mean you can go and just look they they said that they are approaching the bible unapologetically complementarian and that they are that their goal was to help restore god-given roles between women and men and make those very clear in the biblical text so they actually tell us that as a historian trying to figure out motives behind people is really hard Um, it makes it so much easier when they tell us why they're doing things. And (laughs) they told us why they were doing this with the ESV. The ESV is about 90 to 95% the RSV. Mostly it's the same. Most of the changes that it makes have to do with emphasizing complementarianism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what they fiddled with, they fiddled with the Paul. They fiddled with um, Genesis, thinking about the creation story um and various other places you know throughout uh, not all of their changes are you know some of their changes probably are, are are fine um but they did have some pretty infamous ones like originally they didn't realize that the word the greek word that they kept translating as brothers really does mean both brothers and sisters mm. and so they went through and translated it very rigidly as only brothers when, and it actually took another um, trend, actually a guy from Dallas Theological Seminary who said, uh, did y'all know that this word also means sisters? And what's so shocking about it is that was new information to Wayne Grudem, which makes me really surprised <laughs> that he, as a biblical scholar, that this was new information to him, that that word really actually does also mean sisters. Um, so anyway, so I think, I think what, people have been so surprised about is that they bought the line, you know, all of these, bible they say, this is the closest to the original version. And I would argue that not, I would argue that all Bible translations um, can't could in some way, maybe claim that because all of them are trying to get closer in different, different ways, but all of them have the same problems. Um, and so You know, I think as, you know, there are some that I would say are thinking about the gender inclusivity and the way that those pronouns were supposed to be used and the position of women. Um, There are some that get that more correct to what the original text probably, probably was and what it was insinuating about the roles of women. Um, so, like the, you know, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, does a pretty good job with this, but it also tells you that it's doing this. So, if you want to say, well, it's biased that way, I'll be well, yeah, they tell you that the same way the ESV tells you that it's doing the opposite. Um, so, on the one hand, it does make it a little bit, you know, confusing for Christians. I always tell Christians, you know, on the one hand, um, it's 90 to 95 percent the same. So you really can use almost, you know, don't go burn any Bibles. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, it also, those differences matter. And the only way you know why they're making those differences is if you look to see why they're telling you. And so read the introduction to your Bible. Read the choices made by the translators. Go look and see who's on the translator board if they all represent the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, that tells you something. Um, yeah. So, you know, go and do your homework on your Bible translation and use more than one Bible translation. Mm-hmm. So that's my, my mm-hmm. advice um, to people trying to sort this mm-hmm. out. So I, I don't want to scare people and make them think that nothing is – I don't want them to think Bart Ehrman is correct about all this because he's not. Um, he goes really, really far the other way. Uh, but at the same time there are changes that are made by translators and many of those changes have affected women and have led to support for complementarianism
1: yeah i agreed completely with uh, your advice to look at multiple translations Um, there's one website i really like uh, called biblehub.com and yes yeah and and it's really neat i mean you Uh, search for a verse and it shows you like 10 or 12 different translations all on one page and so it becomes really easy then to check and see well how do different translations handle the same verse Um, yeah and sometimes there's some interesting differences
0: yeah and you can ask questions be like why why did why is this Mm changed and some of them you probably care about more than others like there's some changes I read through and I'm like Oh, I don't care about that at all. I don't really care. It doesn't. But some people really care about that. So, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, So besides mistranslations of our English Bible or in our English Bible, you also argue that we've forgotten the history of medieval women preachers um, because modern Christians rewrote that history uh, to minimize their contributions. So I wanna ask a, maybe a difficult question, but why? <laughs> why, why do these mistranslations and selective histories happen?
0: So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation. I'm thinking about actually a Twitter exchange yesterday that, um, that got kind of fiery between Kristen Kobes-Dumay and um, Denny Burke and um, Andrew Walker. I think that he's the, anyway, I had to look him up. I actually didn't know who he was. Um, you know, That's the thing is people think that I know all this stuff about modern evangelicals and their fights. And I try to tell them, I'm like, y'all, I'm a medieval historian. I, <laughs> the only reason I've gotten involved in this is because it matters. And I decided I had to speak, but I'm always speaking from, in some ways, I kind of feel like an outsider to some of these evangelical fights because at scholarly fights, because because i'm a medieval historian yeah. so anyway so it's funny because i it gives me a different perspective on the whole thing no problem. so what we have to realize is that there is a um there is a power struggle that has been going on within the world of evangelicalism and it's been going on actually for quite some time um and if historically speaking you've got to go back to the 19th century and and a lot of this i mean there's I haven't actually talked about this for a while and i haven't explored this but beverly roberts caventa um who is a really really wonderful biblical scholar too and she's she's so thoughtful she's a pauline scholar and you know she said something really interesting once that i've never forgotten and she was talking in reference to junia who is the apostle who was mentioned in romans 16 and junia has a fascinating history where she was regarded as female as an apostle until almost the 19th century. And in the 19th century, she starts getting translated as a man. And the reason is because people believed that a woman couldn't be an apostle. So they decided that she had to be, it had to be Junius, that it couldn't be a woman. So that, that was their reason hmm. Beverly Roberts, Gaventa suggests that this actually took off during the era of suffrage and she she says that it is her gut that it has to do with trying to suppress the suffrage movement mm-hmm. you know essentially trying to minimize women's leadership in the bible to make an argument about why women shouldn't have the right to vote this is a fascinating, or you know, fascinating suggestion. Um, you know, she says that it's just it's her gut, and also sort of looking broadly at when this happens. Um, so I haven't explored this. This is a wonderful avenue to explore to see if there's any connection between what's going on with Junius, these Bible translations, and and the suffrage and the anti-suffrage movement. Hmm. Um, but I, that pretty much answers your question. I mean, people don't like this. People don't like. They say, oh well you know, we honestly believe this from reading the Bible. And I'm like, sure, there are things I honestly believe, you know, reading the Bible. But I still always have to ask myself, why do I believe that? Uh, I don't think that's a scary question. I think it's a question we should all ask. You know, like if you ask me, why do you believe in Jesus? Um, you know, Frank Schaefer actually asked me that not too long ago in the middle of his show. He, he essentially, he said, why do you still believe? and and i'm like you know i still believe because i have asked myself the hard questions about jesus and what i have found only strengthens my faith um and i believe that um i believe that jesus is who we who he says he is that he is god and i believe that salvation is only through him um and so you know but i have asked myself the hard questions about why do i believe that when i look over the framework of christian history Everything that I look through supports, you know, allows strengthens my faith. Um, so I think when we think about like women and why do we believe this, you know, why do we believe that Junia, um, if she is an apostle, she's not the same type of apostle as everybody else. You know, we need to ask ourselves, why do we think that? And if you get back to those motives of why do we think that, what it usually comes down to is because we don't believe that women can do these same things as men. We believe that women, especially for evangelicals, we believe that women are called to different roles, the separate but equal, which should give us a lot of red warning flags. Um, as one of my students said recently, said that has a lot of Plessy versus Ferguson vibes to it. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it, it does. Um, so we need to ask ourselves why. And what we find is that some of these strongest arguments trying to push women um, under and emphasizing that women should not have these leadership positions. They usually come at times in church history where um, the church or different groups within the church are trying to strengthen male leadership and reinforce male leadership. So we put this in the context of um, American history in the 20th century. We know that women served as never to the same level as men because it's always harder for women to do these things. But we know that women were ordained, ordained in evangelical spaces, in many evangelical spaces. We know that women, um, led churches as you know, what we would call today a senior pastor. Um, in, you know, throughout the, the 20th century, the shift happens after World War II. Um, And if you think about, you know, feminism is born in a moment where American culture is trying to convince women to go back home. And they actually are starting to, they pass laws. You know, there's many times where women, once they get pregnant, they can be fired from their jobs. I mean, women face this in the 50s and 60s and even the 70s. Women would hide their pregnancies because they they could get fired for it. Um, And there would be no legal recourse for them. And so we think about, you know, it's in that context where they're trying to push, get women to go back home so that men can have these jobs. Um, And this is also what's going on in churches at a time when women are beginning to fill up the seminaries and beginning to be ordained as, as pastors, all of a sudden we get this hard turn in the church that begins to argue that women cannot have these roles because God says so. And it seems a very, you know, concerted effort to keep women out of men jo- men's jobs. Um, and history shows this pattern repeats itself in the making of biblical womanhood. I talk about a time when this happens in the central Middle Ages, um, <laughs> where exactly, you know, the same type of thing happens, where they are trying to, um, to bolster the authority of male clergy. And it comes at the cost of women in leadership positions, yeah. um, and so this is a pattern that repeats itself. And we saw it repeated in the post-World War II America, and event- eventually, what happened, you know, in the '60s and '70s—that's what gave birth to complementarianism. Hmm.
1: Do you think that those um, those concerted efforts happen uh, as a result of? Like these three guys who, you know, really are looking out for themselves. Like, I want to make sure I've got the top position, um, and then that kind of uh, bleeds out. Or do you think it's more of a bottom up thing, where maybe more broadly, like men aren't coordinating necessarily, but they're, you know, like implicit bias is leading them to just think, "Well, oh, man I should be doing this, not a woman." And yeah, uh, what you know, yeah, what are no, your I- thoughts?
0: that no i think a lot of it is i mean it's patriarchy yeah um this is part of our this is part of our heritage you know the us the western worldview. Um, although um we shouldn't use the word world, worldview but our western sort of heritage um we inherited ideas that women are are not equal to men and the the 19th century we are definitely a product of the 19th century very close to us in time and the 19th century had some of the um harshest sort of you know this idea that women belong under male authority that women are not equal to men um you know even sort of this is you know, birth came from the enlightenment that's another historical periodization that i don't really like but i use it because we know what that means the enlightenment <laughs> and in which they argued that women's brains were made differently from men and that women you know simply did not have the mental capacity to be in leadership positions, and so those ideas carried into the 20th century. You know, you can see mm-hmm. them playing out in like the suffrage fight. Um, you know, sort of all every there was a lot of um, fluctuation during the war years, World War One and World War Two, um, mm-hmm. because it was kind of all hands on deck. And so what we see is we see women moving or women staying a lot of women were already working they stay in these spaces they get more authority in these spaces because the men aren't there and then we see women moving into positions that men had had previously um and then it's after this war where the men are coming home and there's not jobs because women are in them Mm. and so it's this sort and then we also have a problem again with you know thinking about what do we do with uh things like childcare. And all of the sort of, you know, the American business model is based upon men working outside the home. It is not based upon women. And it is not very including a family life. COVID's kind of changed all that. But um, before COVID, you know, it wasn't very including a family life. And so it's also a problem is like, because if both parents are working, what do you do with the kids? And the U.S. does not have a system that enables, that supports two working parents. It's very, very hard. You know, the school system does not align with it. Um, there's a lot of assumptions, you know, I mean, it's, it just doesn't align with it well. And so the the burden falls more heavily on one of those parents. And traditionally, because of our 19th century heritage, because of, you know, because of uh, patriarchy, you know, again, in this new way, it, it often falls on women. Mm-hmm. And so sort of this, it, you know, for the, for society to function well and smoothly, um, it's easier if, if we have women in the home. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, so I don't think it's a whole lot of men getting together and trying to do this. I think it is, I think it is the system in our current system. That um, has a lot of structural inequalities within it. Um, that has not been uh, welcoming of alternate work hours and alternate workspaces. Um, has made it really hard to have dual working parents. And this is something that the you know the the ERA tried to address. Um, and it got a whole lot of women. You know, women defeated the ERA, and they they defeated it because it. I think by that point, it had become an identity question for women, that women's identity was so wrapped up in this idea of being wives and mothers and that um, laws that enabled women to, um, that would have made it easier for women not to be those things um, threatened female identity, especially wealthier, elite women, um, white women. They are pretty much the ones who defeated the ERA um, because it threatened their identity that they had built. So you, know, you asked a really complex question as a historian. Um, but what we also know, though, is that in the 1980s, there were a group of men who got together and decided that they were going to do some things to try to restore what they considered to be proper gender roles within the church. And they, it was a colluded effort. And they are called the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They are also behind the Gospel Coalition. Um, they are behind the ESB, and they are—they were concerted in their efforts. So most people are not, <laughs> but in the—but some are. Yeah. And um, those some that did that in the 1980s have had a tremendous influence on the conservative evangelical world.
1: Yeah, I, I think that was a terrific answer to a very complex question. Um, And just to kind of sum it up, and you know, what I hear you, (laughs) what I hear you saying is, you know, you, you take the structural uh, systems that we of our society, um, you add in kind of cultural conditioning, you know, expectations, assumptions. um, And then Add in a third element, which is when you do sometimes get those groups who get together and make a concerted effort to uh, exert influence and uh, mm-hmm. amplify their their views and spread them. And then, you you know, you have this result. Um, and that that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, both for what we're talking about, as well as other kind of social movements, you know, just a yeah. brief. Yeah, just a brief anecdote to kind of illustrate it. Um when uh, so my son's adopted and when we were at the hospital and he was about to be born, um, someone related to the birth mother, you know, said, so I guess, you know, you're here for the baby. And we were talking and uh, she was got kind of upset when she learned that my wife is going planning to go back to work after like a six week maternity leave. And she's like, well, who's going to watch the baby? You know, there's just this assumption that it's not going to be the husband or the dad. Right. Um, Okay. So I want to, I think I'm going to ask uh, two more questions and then, and kind of wrap up. Um, and they're kind of related questions, but so how does the doctrine of biblical inerrancy Mm. justify patriarchy?
0: Yeah. So this is fun. Um, I knew I was going to be in trouble when I mentioned inerrancy. Um, I knew that, you know, sort of my point with doing it um, was first of all, it's part of this whole story. I mean, this is why we believe. This is why we believe it's gospel truth is because we have been taught that um, that the only faithful interpretation of the Bible is to in which is what you know inerrancy claims. The only faithful interpretation of the Bible is to interpret Paul literally. Which they argue means giving literal women be silent to all, you know that belongs to all women in some fashion, and women be under the authority. So they argue that's the only faithful interpretation of the Bible. My argument is that um, we've been taught to believe that that is the fa- that that is the only faithful way to interpret the Bible, but it is not. So when people ask me, they're like, "Are you an inerrantist?" I'm like, "That's the wrong question." Hmm. The question is, do I believe the Bible? And my answer to that is yes. Do I believe your interpretation of the Bible? Maybe not. Um, and so, inerrancy is really—it's not about the Bible; it's about a particular interpretation of the Bible um, that was manifested in the early 20th century. Although I have a good friend who is a historian of this era, and she's like, it's not all the fundamentalist modernist controversies' fault. And I'm like, yeah, I know you're right. You're right about that. It's not. But they are sort of a convenient starting point um, for for this. But it was a particular interpretation of the Bible by a group of um, scholar theologians who were worried about sort of this very liberal interpretation, really this German intellectual movement that got so excited about deconstruction. That they begin to argue that there was nothing at all about the Bible that we really could believe in, um, because you know, what, whatever methods that they were they were using, that there is nothing in it that's actually accurate at all. So we have this reaction to it that says, no, no, no. If you are a Christian, we we have to believe, and if we don't believe in everything literally in the Bible, then our whole faith falls apart. This is a very fragile understanding of the Bible. Um, But this is sort of the beginning. This is where we see inerrancy enter into it. And inerrancy is this understanding that the Bible is literally true as interpreted by this group of early 20th century, mostly white, actually all white, um, elite male theologians who said, this is the way we interpret the Bible. And if you don't interpret it this way, literally, then it leads to an erosion of faith, and you know, slippery slope. Inerrancy creates the argument of slippery slope. Yeah. So, so when people talk about liberal dr- drift and stuff, I'm like, y'all defined liberal drift. <laughs> you know, it's it's not actually it's not fair to say this is going to you know to to define what to define it on your own terms. And then get to say that's what's happening because I defined it that way. That's what they do. Yeah. And so inerrancy gives, inerrancy creates this atmosphere of fear because the fear is, is that if I don't believe the Bible is literally true in this way, this particular way, then what that means is I don't really believe. And it makes us fearful. As individual Christians, you know, you know, if I even go down that road, I maybe I'm not really saved. And this is actually terrifying to people who are really reformed in their thinking, because you know, either you're reformed, either either you're saved or you're not saved, and that's also simplifying Reformed doctrine. But sort of, but so it's like if I go down that path, maybe that means I'm not I'm not really one of the elect. And that's a very, you know, that can be a very scary, scary thing, too. Um, but it creates this atmosphere of fear. And it also creates an atmosphere out of this atmosphere is fear is this idea you can't even question it. Yeah. And so for women to question male headship is to question the gospel. Yeah. And, and that's what inerrancy has done. Um, and really, that's what I was trying to disentangle in my book is to show that this is not part of the gospel. This is not part of the gospel. Um, and so even if you still believe in complementarianism, but you walk away from my book realizing that people who don't believe in it can be faithful Christians too, then I'm fine with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. Um, so this is maybe a little bit of a loaded question, but <laughs> but in your view, um, is inerrancy the best way to understand the Bible or do you read the Bible and believe in the Bible uh, from a different perspective?
0: Um, I don't think inerrancy is the right word. I mean, you know, that's, I'll just get down to it. I don't think inerrancy means what we think it means. <laughs> um, I, it, we use it to, we think it means being faithful to scripture and believing mm. in scriptural authority. Um, but what it really means is being faithful to scripture in a particular way as defined by a small group of people.
1: Yeah. Agreeing with their Um, interpretation.
0: Yeah. It's inerrancy is interpretation. Inerrancy is not about believing in the Bible. Yeah. And so I would say, I believe in the Bible. In fact, people would probably be really surprised how traditional I am in believing, you know, the Bible and the things in the Bible um, you know, as one, one person said, you know, she said, Beth, you're pretty much a dyed in the wool evangelical. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Which is <laughs> funny too, because, um, I actually would be a lot of help <laughs> to the evangelical world, except for they're afraid, <laughs> um, because I, because I'm not complementarian. Yeah. So, um, so no, I actually, I mean, I, I believe I'll, I'll go head to head with Bart Ehrman on on the Bible that, um, you know, I, I believe it's, I believe it's true. If you want to use true in that way, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Um, and that, uh, that salvation comes through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I'll, I'll hold really fast to that. I also am pretty, you know, I, I am Protestant for a reason, I'm not Protestant just because I grew up that way. Um, I'm a Catholic historian. I'm a medieval historian, so I'm a Catholic historian. Mm-hmm. I understand Catholicism really well. There's many things about Catholicism that I think is, are really wonderful and you know beautiful pieces that we've lost, but I'm not Catholic. Um, I believe Catholics are my Christian brothers and sisters, but I believe that we do have a different understanding in theology and um, I, I prefer Protestant understandings of theology. And so, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty, pretty traditional in those ways. I'm very happy as a Baptist. People ask me, why are you a Baptist? And I'm like, well, because I believe in Baptist ecclesiology. (laughs) Um, I believe that power being concentrated in the hands of individual of, you know, certain individuals within the church is dangerous. And Baptists believe that, you know, essentially we, we do everything by committee. And I think that's, the, it's not always perfect, and Baptists get uh, things wrong a lot. Um, but I think it is a better form, you know, this emphasis on the significance of the church, the importance of the body, and the importance that the body has to work together, um, all of these things. So I, I'm pretty traditional in, in those, those types of, understa- you know, of understanding the Bible. Um, I also have, you know, I believe the best way to interpret the Bible is by using the Bible. And then by putting it into context, and those are pretty traditional, you know, sort of evangelical modes of understanding the Bible, Um, which is why it's so ironic to me, because if we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, complementarianism falls apart. I mean, that's the thing. It just, it doesn't hold up when you use the Bible to interpret those verses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a terrific answer. And uh, I've never really thought about it in that way, that, you know, stop even using the word. It's not the right word. We, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Um, right. Um, because, yeah, I mean, just kind of circling back to our earlier part of our conversation, um, I mean, when you start to put these verses in their ancient context, and you start to, you know, think about the audience in that time, I mean, you're already moving away from what, many people mean by inerrancy you know they mean like this plain right. this very plain literal interpretation you don't have to read into it just read the words on the page um right. and but that's you can't do that when you're right. reading an ancient text written for an ancient audience in a culture and language it's not even our language and um yeah, yeah so so yeah I, I would agree with you that you know let's get past that debate and talk instead about, well, how do we understand this contextually? Because that's actually a high view of scripture and it respects the scriptures and the biblical authors.
0: Yeah. Yes. I Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. That's what I think. So, you know, I, um, I, I have am trying to remove the word inerrancy from my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as trying to impress upon other, you know, some people though, I still like they'll ask me and I'll explain all this, like what I just did to them. And they'll be like, okay, but are you an inerrantist? Oh, I I'm just not going to answer that question for you. Um, Because If I say no, then you're shutting your ears. If I say yes, I'm not really telling the truth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And even
0: though I mean it the way you think you mean it, but
1: (laughs) sure. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, well, Beth, I know that you have to go. Um, is is there anything else you want listeners to know? Like, um, and also where can listeners find your, your book and your other work and, and connect with you online?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you first for having me. People can find me on Twitter for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> that's probably easiest. I'm also on Instagram. Instagram is much more fun because you just get to post pictures. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, like, I like Instagram a lot. But um, anyway, and I mostly am a medieval historian. So, you know, probably most of my other work you don't want to read. Um, <laughs> although I do have some accessible articles out there that are, that are fun. Uh, but I am going to keep writing. You can find me on the Anxious Bench. Where I write pretty regularly on Pathos, and so you'll see me at least once once a month appear on on the Anxious Bench, um, and there will probably be some more books coming.
1: Wonderful, so. Beth. Thank you so much for your time and this wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, and tell your wife hello.
1: I will. <laughs> bye. Okay.
0: <laughs> bye bye.
1: Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, there's so much knowledge there, so much good perspective there, and I want to encourage you to get the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Um, there is so much more in that book that we did not have time to get into in our conversation. Um, I had a one, a couple questions that I had to just completely leave out due to time constraints. Um, I really appreciate Beth and making the time in her busy schedule in her life to talk with me. Um, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um... Jessica, my wife Jessica, um, told me, hey, Beth Allison Barr just tweeted that she's open to podcast interviews again, and so I messaged her, and I said, you know, if you would uh, come on my podcast, it would make my wife so happy, and so that's actually kind of how I landed um, Beth Allison Barr in in her busy schedule, Um, so I really appreciate her her time and her willingness to come on and uh, just such a great conversation and the book is fantastic if you liked the book liked this conversation you would love the book um you know it's part Beth's memoir of her experiences um part history and a little bit of theology um and again you know there's just so much in that book that we just didn't have time to get into um in particular, you know, the sanctifying of the cult of domesticity, you know, things like that that are just really interesting. And she does such a good job contextualizing those things historically and pointing out what is biblical, what is not biblical, and uh, and just providing a, a different way of, of viewing and thinking about these things. Um, Beth mentioned a lot of different people and names and research and so i'll put uh links to all of that in the show notes if you want to explore some of those things more uh, as well as links to where you can find the book as well and uh, connect with Beth and read her blog at uh, the anxious bench on the website patheos so thank you as always for listening please tell people about this episode um and share it with your friends and family and
0: share it on social media and give us a review if you have a moment thank you so much Go and be free.